that's a great privilege to be here with you guys. Um, I don't know uh, how you're responding to Dan's moving on to another call. Uh, my little brother played at the University of Florida. Uh, I am a Florida Gator through and through. We hate, uh, who's that Ohio State dude? I can't even say his name. The coach that left us, uh, we hate him. Uh, uh, I ate at Susan's Diner and the waitress came over and she said to Dan, uh, the lady in the apartment over here has got some kind of problem. And he didn't even move his car. He just walked from our lunch over to take care of her. As we plant churches in Tennessee Valley Presbytery, one of the things that we desire to find is the kind of men who own their community as their parish. You know, if you, if you read Les Mis, there's a time in which someone says <clears throat> that they had been all over town and not found any help. And someone else says, well, then you didn't see the priest because the priest helps anyone. And uh, we envision that our churches will become parish churches that are caring for the people in their community. And at least in that respect, um, Dan crushed it in this neighborhood. And um, I hope that the Lord brings you another man who will also have the kind of ministry among this community that you guys had with Dan. Uh, it was outstanding. Uh, I'm uh, pleased to be with you. My name is Ted Strawbridge. And uh, my wife and I came two years ago to Chattanooga, our daughter, uh, played for some coach at Covenant College, and he hired her to be an assistant for him. And uh, that took uh, my wife about seven seconds to decide, therefore, that we would live near Covenant College. So we bought a little cabin up on the mountain, and uh, we support uh, Covenant girls' soccer uh, with our whole hearts. So this is a great place for us for many reasons. I do have a job. My job is to promote church planting. I'm kind of crazy that way. Ashley Bates, whatever her new name is, uh, her dad won't even let me preach at his church because I tend to use all kinds of language. It's today is every man for himself. Uh, you, you have now been warned, meaning uh, I talk a lot and, and you'll have to make a sermon out of it as best you can. In the community that I came from, I fell into a group of men that uh, we're friends all the way from high school. They won back-to-back -back state football championships in our little town in 1974 and 75. And everybody in that group remembers when the whole town uh, came out to watch them play football. And so their memory of what their community was was an incredible thing. And somehow they allowed a preacher into their friendships. And then one of them was unfaithful to his wife. And for some reason, even though he didn't know the Lord, he called me. And the next thing you know, I'm becoming the best friend of all these men who are cheating on their wives and all these men that are alcoholics. And so uh, I discovered a whole different language than most PCA folks use. And it's hard sometimes for me to um, be a little more careful, shall we say. I was at First Pres. I teach a Sunday school class at First Pres on uh, the primeval history and uh, they are without a pastor now, and so they came to me, and three or four of their elders have talked to me about helping them in that search process. <clears throat> uh, one of them said to me, I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't know how to say this. Uh, you're not known as a pulpiteer. <laughs> and I said, no, you're absolutely right. I am not a pulpiteer. In AA, they say a lot that if your shoes haven't been thrown up on lately, you're running with the wrong people. Meaning, right, 
if you are an alcoholic but you've forgotten what it's like to be caring for alcoholics, right? You're tending to live some other life. And so I say all that only to say, good luck this morning. I love you. And if I offend you, it's um, because I've been walking with a different crowd of folks. I do have a job. My job is to plant churches across Chattanooga um, and Knoxville and all the little counties in between. But I believe that the preaching of the word preempts my job. I'm not here to tell you about church planting. I'm here to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he inaugurated. Jesus said, when you see me by my finger casting out demons, then you know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So even when I'm at First Press, you know, I have this really cool young people's Sunday school class. I thought it would be great practice for me to teach their young people's Sunday school class the class that I'm going to teach to minority folks as we try to offer minority seminary education for free. They didn't need me for that class, but the 87-year-olds, they needed a teacher. So I'm teaching a class of uh, largely older folks at First Presbyterian Church on primeval history. I meet an older gentleman in the back before the class begins. He says to me, so are you any good? <laughs> well, you can't back down from that. So I had to say, well, sir, on this topic, I am the best. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, okay, little boy, you see that man right there? I said, yes, sir. He said, he's 101 years old. What are you going to teach him? I thought, nothing. I don't know. Um, I believe that the whole of the scripture introduces us to the idea of the kingdom. The primary way we know and relate to God is as our sovereign. He is our father, yes, but our father is a king. And the primary way, the story of the scripture, is a four-part harmony. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. And when I was a child, the church that I landed in, that we grew up in, Having been converted primarily through a prayer church ministry, we got more and more engaged in the church. They preach creation, fall, redemption, creation, fall, redemption, creation, fall, redemption, which is not bad, right? I mean, it's good to know that the Lord created everything, and it's good to understand that it was sin that came and twisted all of God's creation, and it's good to know that the bulk of the scripture is all about God's story for his redemption. But the author of the book of Hebrews is writing pastorally to a people who are exhausted, who are tired, who've been through a week where they realize that the world is not as it should be. And the writer of Hebrews tells you a couple of things all over the place. He lifts up something beautiful. For you have not been bought with gold or jewels, precious silver. You've been bought with the very blood of Christ. A beautiful thing for you to contemplate. And then he turns right around and says, oh, and by the way, if you turn away having been bought with this precious blood, there is no hope for you. Over and over and over, the writer of Hebrews talks very clearly to people who are wearied and tired and they need to hear again that the kingdom of God is their only hope. They need to be shaken out of their conviction at the loss of things that were very important to them and reminded of the glory of God. And so this morning, again, I'm not here to talk to you necessarily about church planting. I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 18. Now, this is really a dirty trick because I'm uh, jumping, as it were, as if this movie 
uh, had a trailer and I'm giving you the heart of Hebrews uh, without having given you all of the preparation for it, but we'll let that be as it is. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an angel touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. In the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So Father, we come to you this morning, uh, we pause just as we begin, and we ask that you by Holy Spirit would be our teacher. You would lift our hearts you would cause us to have faith that you, by Holy Spirit, would open our eyes and enable us to see the story that we need to see. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the journey of desire, John Eldridge writes, uh, I meet many faithful Christians who, in spite of their faith, are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean that they no longer have a future. But often due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to be accomplished in life, they did not. Much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life lies before them. The life that lies endlessly before us in the kingdom of God. Again, in the divine conspiracy, it's quoted, Pascal observed, we are never living, but hoping, hoping to live, and whilst we are always preparing to be happy, it is certain we never shall be so if we aspire to no other happiness than what can be enjoyed in this life. Desire cannot live without hope, yet we can only hope for that which we desire. There simply must be something more. Something out there on the road ahead of us that offers the life that we prize. To sustain the life of the heart, the life of deep desire, we desperately need to possess a clearer picture of the life that lies before us. So very simply, I, I just want to talk about uh, the shakable life and the unshakable life. In this passage, it refers to an experience in the Old Testament history when God met Noah, met Noah, met Moses on top of the mountain, and the storm came down on the mountain, and the lightning flashed, and the thunder rolled, 
And even if an animal touched the mountain, uh, it died. And it says in this passage, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, to such a voice speaking words that those who heard begged for it to be stopped. Now that's pretty significant. If you were at that mountain, you would say, wow, oh my gosh, right? But the writer of Hebrews is comparing, as he does in so many ways, something little to something big. And he's saying in this passage that even in the Old Testament experience, the revelation of God that they had was so minimal compared to the reality that you have received. Again, Jesus said, when you see me by my finger casting out demons, then you know the kingdom of God is at hand. When we elect a president, the very first thing that we do with him is we have a giant ceremony and we inaugurate him. It is the beginning of his ministry. And so we understand that the difference between all the prophets of the Old Testament who talked about the coming king and talked about the coming era, the coming new age, the coming light, the difference between them and Jesus is Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stands up when all those people are doing that crazy stuff like y'all do in worship here all the time when flames of fire come out of your head and you speak all kinds of words that nobody can know. You know, just an ordinary day at Chat Valley Press, right? And they say those people are drunk. You remember this? And Peter gets up and he explains to them what's going on and he says, these people are not drunk this is what the prophet Joel said when Joel predicted that in the last days, and he begins to describe, Peter is now describing what Joel said would happen as something that's happening now. If I began a story with you and I started it by saying, once upon a time, right? particularly if I called the children up here and we had the children all gathered, and I said to them, once upon a time, what kind of story am I telling? A fairy tale, a children's fable, or whatever you want to call it, right? That phrase tells you what I'm talking about. In the same way, the phrase, in the last days, was a Hebrew euphemism. And it would tell the audience that when I start a sentence by saying, in the last days, you understand that everything I'm telling you is talking about when the Messiah comes back. When the Messiah arrives, you understand? And so when Peter stands up at Pentecost and says, what you're saying is not crazy, these people aren't drunk. He's saying, but this is what Joel talked about when he said in his prophecy, in the last days. You understand? The last days have already begun. Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God. And so when you get to a week and you're tired and exhausted and you realize the world isn't what it should be, something inside of you ought to raise up and say, but the kingdom of God is here. You understand? 
And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing, having done it over and over and over, talking about the shadow and the reality, the little and the big, is now he's saying, look, when Moses met God on the mountain, it was a thing, but it was nothing like what you have. Our church is 59.1 or 59.3 years old. When I spoke at CCS, I'm 60 years old. No one 60 years old should speak to a class full of middle schoolers. I'm like, what are you people thinking? But I can at least be honest with them. The church that I belong to is 59.3 years old. Your middle school students, you know how to do math. Take 59.3 and add 20 to it. What do you have? That's right, dead. 79.3 years old will be in 20 years. We're losing all our young people. We're keeping all our old people. This can't keep going on. If we keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting something different is going to happen. We have a shelf life. We've got to understand that the kingdom of God is real and it's here and it's now. And it's in Boston where they speak 140 different languages in the Boston community. You know how hard it is to plant a church that's going to reach people and there's 140 different ethnicities that speak a different language? How in the world do you do that? <clears throat> this place is beautiful. You know Megan? She's the teacher of the year across the street. They have a dad's day. They have so many kids without dads over there, they have to call old people like me and say, hey, would you come be a pretend dad? Can you imagine anything worse than not having a dad than having to have a pretend dad? I thought that would be horrible. But I show up to be a pretend dad on dad's day thinking, wow, this is going to be bad. And I get Chloe. Chloe doesn't have a dad. She's so excited to have a pretend dad. What I mean to say is somehow we have to take the gospel and translate it down to our neighborhood in a way that the brokenness of our neighborhood feels relief. <laughs> Chloe was proud of me. And I was just a pretend dad for not very long. Um, you guys are known across the street for the way that this church cares about its community. What is it that gives you hope to reach out into that kind of brokenness? Well, it's not the storm and the fire that came to a mountain and can be touched. If you will, verse 22 says the same thing as verse 18. Verse 18 says you have not come, but verse 22 says you have come. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the first thing that I would like to offer you, if you are practicing walking in this ordinary life and having a vision of understanding what the kingdom of God means, is to understand that the story of the gospel is not merely creation, fall, redemption, but creation, fall, redemption, 
and glory. That is, the story of the Bible is not that we levitate up to heaven to be with God. The story of the Bible is that God comes here, that heavenly Jerusalem comes down. N.T. Wright says all the time that our funerals are so pathetic. We say things just like the pagans do, like, oh, he's, he's gone to a better place, right? Without really even talking about where they're going. The story of the, there's no page of the Bible that allows you to believe that God is the kind of God that would make a world and call it good, and then when it got twisted, he would just chuck it and make a whole other one, right? When God called this earth good, yes, very good, what it means is he's committed to this world that he's made. Come on, you people know the Bible? Go read Job. Have you seen my horse? When the sword and the spear rattles and he charges against it and you can't keep him out of battle. Have you seen the ostrich? Right, She has no wings, but when she flaps her wings to run, no one can keep up with her. Right, The Lord brags about his creation. Right, Jonah, do you remember Jonah? When Jonah's so mad that God is forgiving Nineveh and he pouts and he's under his little vine and the Lord comes to him and he says, Jonah... Don't you know there are 120,000 people in that city who don't know their right hand from their left? Who is it that doesn't know their right hand from their left? Good, children. Little children. Two-year-olds, three-year-olds. The Lord says to him, Jonah, you want me to wipe out the city. Don't you understand? There are 120,000 little children in that city. Comma, and many cattle as well. Isn't that strange? The God that you worship, he loves cows because he made them. There's not a dumber animal in the entire universe than a cow. And God loves them. Right? No page of the Bible tells you that God is not going to come and restore his creation to what it was supposed to be. Jesus came to announce the coming of the kingdom to say, I'm getting it all back. Everything. When you die and come immediately into the presence of Jesus and you step out of time as we understand it and right behind you comes your grandchildren and right behind them comes your great-great-grandchildren and all of you come together in your experience of coming into the presence of Jesus and coming back to this earth. When you get here, you will see this earth, the new Jerusalem, the city of the king, and you'll know this place, you understand? It'll be these trees, these houses, these roads. Oh my gosh, come on. Don't you know what happens when the Messiah comes back? What do the trees do? They clap their hand, right? I have a dog who loves me as all the world should love me, right? <laughs> my wife thinks he's crazy. I think everybody in the world is crazy. My dog gets it right. My wife says to me, oh my gosh, when you pull into our neighborhood, he jumps up and he goes to the end of the rope and he barks differently than he barks all day long. I'm thinking, yes, he does. And by the way, wife, maybe there's some things you could learn from him. No, I don't, I don't say that. When I come home, Chaco bounds up to me. If I reached in and I grabbed a tire iron 
and I pulled it out, and as he comes up to love me, I hit him over the head. It would be the same thing as the Messiah coming back. The trees are clapping their hands at the return of the Messiah, and he <laughs> annihilates them with fire. Can you hear that? That makes no sense at all. When the Messiah returns, he doesn't annihilate the world. It's purified as if by fire, yes. But this world, right? You understand this? You guys know the Bible. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You struggling? You're tired? Guess what? One day, you will be a co-heir of everything that you see. Publix will belong to you. Publix is from... <laughs> Publix is from Lakeland. Publix makes shopping a pleasure. <laughs> All Publix will belong to us. You understand? <clears throat> when the New Testament says that you ought to work heartily as unto the Lord, it's not that you ought to work and pretend like your work is a servant unto the Lord. It is because your work is a service unto the Lord. The things that you do in this life, they matter. And this world passes through to that. When I was in Augusta, Georgia, we used to go and we'd have family life retreats in this place uh, down off the Savannah River where Whitfield had a, um, an orphanage. And, and they baked the bricks for the buildings out of the clay down by the river. But you don't build your buildings down by the river. That's where the mosquitoes are. So they had the orphans carry the bricks that were cooling up to where they were building the building. Now the coolest thing of all is that these bricks hadn't yet set up. And so you have these buildings that were made for an orphanage and every single brick has the fingerprint of an orphan in it. And I'm not telling you that I know how to draw a straight line from this world to the next and perfectly explain how everything goes from one to the other. But I am telling you that God has given you a job, a calling, a mission. And he has framed your personality just for that job. And when you get to the new heavens and the new earth, kind of like those bricks, you'll see your fingerprints in the world that lasts forever. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, you're tired, I get it. You're exhausted. I get it. You've run out of money. I get it. Some of you may even be persecuted. But you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is shakable in this life. You have something that cannot be shaken. You belong to the new Jerusalem, it's yours. Have you forgotten that? You need to be reminded. Secondly, he says this crazy thing. I can't tell you whether to do the Bible first or the story first. <clears throat> I'll get the story first just in case I forget it. One of my AA friends uh, was really talented, top 10% insurance salesman across the entire country in his field. Very, very successful, very functional alcoholic. When he was in recovery, 
uh, in their system, you get these quotas and these rewards. So he gets to go to this trip all the time. And they're the insurance provider for the National Plumbers Association. So his wife wants to go with him on this trip now that he's in recovery. He takes her uh, Saturday night. They have a big party. And she wants to go down to the party. And he says, no, 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 honey, we, we, can't, we can't go there. She said, why not? Honey, it's plumbers at a party. They're all stoned out of their mind. It's really offensive. No, 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 I, I want to go. No, honey, we, we really can't go. Well, how about if we go, but if it gets bad, we'll just set up a sign, and you'll tell me, and I'll know, and that'll be the sign, and we'll leave. Fine, fine, if you want to go. So they come down to the National Plumbers Association party. Maybe you guys are plumbers. I don't know. I know painters have to be drunk to paint. I don't think plumbers have to be drunk to plumb, but anyway. Um, in recovery, he goes down to the Saturday night party, and it turns out that it's actually a great party. And only the people over in the corner are stoned out of his mind. He always was one of those people. And so his perception of the whole party was that it was like that, not like the great party that it was. Not only are you a citizen of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven when Chattanooga Valley will appear in glory. But secondly, in this cosmos, there is a celestial party going on even right now as we speak. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels are celebrating in joyful assembly. So maybe in your little corner of this experience, you're not experiencing that party. And maybe in the lack of attention that our church has given to it, you're not often reminded. But when you are united to Christ, you are united to a celestial party that is going on all the time. Before God made the heavens and the earth, I was there, says Jesus in the Proverbs. I was there delighting in him. I was delighting in his creation of all things. When he made man, we frolicked with delight. Do you understand how happy Yahweh is? If I could talk about happiness, I'd have to get one of the little children. Old people like us, we don't remember happy. Right? This carcass hasn't been really happy in a long time. <laughs> happy is like skipping, right? We'd have, to, how, we'd have to get like a second grader or first grader to come up and show us what really happy is. Where in your theology do you allow for God to be that kind of happy? The writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to a shakable mountain but you come to an unshakable mountain where you have the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, where thousands upon thousands upon 10,000 angels rejoice in celestial party.
Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel's. You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now, um, my family's pretty crazy, if you haven't picked up all this up. When we were assessed for church planting, we radically failed, of course. And uh, my wife was crying on the way home, and she said, you know, they just don't get it. Like, they think you're mean, because I'm mean. She said, but in your family, you're like one of the nice ones. <laughs> my family does funerals like you have never seen before. They are a cosmic celebration. When we did my father's funeral, my little brother and I, the genetic mutant at 6'10 and 400 pounds, this lady came up to us and she said, I don't know either one of you, but I'm putting it down right now. Y'all are doing my funeral. <laughs> right? Because we have a great time celebrating the passage from this life. Now, it does let itself into some odd things. I have a brother-in-law who died exercising, therefore I've never exercised. <laughs> Four o'clock in the morning, he went to run around this lake, and he had a, a, an electrical problem in his heart. The doctor said he was probably dead when he hit the ground. If he'd been on the operating room table, we couldn't have saved him. So anyway, John passed away. My little brother, the genetic mutant, is my sister's pastor as well as little brother. So connection, word gets to word. Timo rushes in to help. Of course, it's his sister's house, so he's taking care of all kinds of things. He comes home, and there at the door is the <clears throat> bowl that has John's personal stuff that he leaves there when he was going running. My little brother, being from the Mean family, picks up his cell phone, and he immediately texts a middle school friend of ours who's now a big wig attorney guy, and he texts him, and he says, Jim... Standing at the Lamb's Book of Life. Is that Valenti with an I or a Y? Because I can't find you in here anywhere. <laughs> the guy died at like 4.30. This is only like 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> the phone rings. My little brother flips it open. It was that long ago. And Jim Valenti says, without even asking, Timo? He knows exactly who it is. He says, Timo, since the seventh grade, you have never done what I've said not once. People will not think this is funny. <laughs> Put that phone down. <laughs> right. When Jesus gathers his disciples and he sends them out into the world two by two, they go out and they cast out demons. And when they come back, they're shocked. Because they actually said things and demons obeyed them. And they're standing around looking at each other like, oh my gosh, we were right there in Chattanooga Valley living our ordinary lives and we told demons to go away and demons fled from us. You remember what Jesus says? Don't you marvel at that. Marvel at your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The writer of Hebrews says this world is going to shake you up. It's going to strip you down. It's going to exhaust you. And I can't give you any worldly thing to make that better. 
No cotton candy, no cup of sweet tea, no coffee made just right is going to fix you. But you belong to the new Jerusalem, the city coming down out of heaven. And one day you'll own this whole world. And you're a part of a celestial party, a celebration where thousands upon ten thousands of angels rejoice before Yahweh. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All we're trying to do when we plant churches is just find a new and different way to invite people into that unshakable world. Won't you pray with me? Father, we come to you today. We bless you, O Lord, because you've been good and kind to us. In the complexities of, you know, when, when you live in the southeast, when you live in Chattanooga, it's hard to even imagine what it would be like living in a place where 140 dialects are spoken. It's hard to even imagine um, what it means to live in a culture that's so far historically removed from the gospel that you don't have the natural inroads. But even here, even in Flintstone, even at Chat Valley, it can be really hard sometimes. We can tend to forget what it means. Christ came to make all things new. Christ came to get everything that belonged to his heavenly father back. That Christ invites us to a new identity where our names are changed and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, Father, we pray that you would make us servants to those around us to learn to practice, to love them, and to care for them. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bind these things to our heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.